Let's get into the word together this morning. Open with me to the book of John chapter 15. We're going to continue today in the series we began last week. John chapter 15. And y'all are in for it. I asked the Lord for a message this week and he gave me three. And I don't know which one you're about to get, to be honest with you. And you might get all three, so get comfortable. John chapter 15. We began something last week that I am so stirred up about. I am so excited about it. And as a minister, uh, it's easy to think that whatever you're on at that particular time, it's the most important thing. It's the greatest thing you've ever seen, the greatest thing you've ever said in your entire life. Uh, But I do believe that. I believe that what you and I are into right now is, I believe it's the most significant thing that we've ever gotten into as a church, and I know we're still young together. But I do believe this, and I'm going to say it, and, and I hope you don't hear it as exaggeration, but I believe that what you and I are talking about right now not only has the power to change our lives, it has the power to save our lives. We're talking about the love of God, knowing His love, walking in His love, showing His love to other people. And like we said last week, you know, we're, we may not be talking about faith as a topic or as a subject, but at the same time, when you're talking about love, you are talking about the thing that makes your faith work. Faith works, how? By love. I like to say it like this. Your faith will work when you find out how much you're loved. That's what makes faith work. I know we're not necessarily talking about the, the, the receiving of healing for the physical body. And yet when you get rooted and grounded in the love of God, believing that God will heal you is easy because you believe how much he loves you. When you understand that God is love, then you can approach anything from the word of God with fresh eyes and fresh perspective. Does God heal? Yeah, he heals. Well, how do I know? Because love heals. This is why it's easy to believe that our God is good and that he'll do good things because just ask yourself this question, what would love do? Would love provide? Sure. Would love heal? Now, I know we're not talking about, you know, financial increase as a topic. And of course, the Bible has a lot of things to say about that. I know we're not talking about discovering your, the, the plan and call for your life, although the Bible has many good things to say about that. And yet, when you talk about the love of God, And you get a revelation of the fact that God is love, not just that he has love, he is love. And then you learn that you and I love out of the overflow of the love that we've been loved with. Your destiny's wrapped up in it. Your call is wrapped up in it. Like we've said, your healing, your prosperity, spirit, soul, and body. There's not one thing in our lives that's not touched by a revelation of how loved we are by God. So are we talking about faith? Well, no, but yeah, yeah. Are we talking about healing? No, but absolutely yes. Are you following me? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? So you see this in the book of John chapter 15. Red words, Jesus is speaking. And he said in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now that is the key right there. That is the key to understanding how to walk in love with the people in your life, whether it's your husband, your wife, your kids, the people on the job, the people in, in the school that you attend. This is the key to doing it right here. 
he said, love each other as I have loved you. If you don't know how much you've been loved, there's no way for you to show that love. Oh yeah, you can, you can scrounge something up. I mean, you can dig up something to show somebody something. And, and, and it's especially easy, you know, if, if they're being good to you, then yeah, I can be good back. If they're showing you some kindness, yeah, I can show some back. If you're loving me, yeah, I can love you. But what about when they're not? What about when they ugly? What about when they're mean and rude? And what about when it's that guy you've been on the job with for 15 years and he just is getting worse day after day after day after day? How, how do you show somebody like that the love of God? Well, that's, that's where you've got to go back to how you've been loved. The Bible says he loved you when you were dead in sin, dead in trespasses. He loved you, check this out, when you hated him. And that's the kind of love that we've been shown. And if we've been given that love, if that's what's been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, guess what we are carriers of? That kind of love. And now that you've got a revelation of the, the love that you've been given, now you know how to show it. Then you know how to walk in it. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. We talked about that last week. I want to get into it again today. He said in the next verse, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down. Somebody say, lay down. To lay down one's life for his friends. Put up that 13th verse, please, in the New Living Translation. John 15, 13, in the New Living Translation, while they look for it, let me just read it to you. There it is. He said it like this. There is, now say these next words with me, no greater love. That's the title of our series that we're in right now. There is, say it again, no greater love. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now he didn't say there is no other love. He said there is no greater love. So this is the greatest expression of love. There's no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Just that statement alone should, should serve to go to work on us right away that maybe we don't know everything there is to know about friendship. And that we think of friendship as some, I, I don't know, lesser level of relationship. And, and you, we, we talk that way. We mentioned this last week. We talk that way. We think that way. Oh, no, no, we're just friends. We're just friends. And the problem is the limitations that are in our own language. The English language, we use the same word to describe so many different things. I mean, take the word love itself. We, we use the word love to describe the way we feel about our spouse and the way we feel about pizza. You do know there's supposed to be a difference, right? I love her and I love this car. Guys, fellas, husbands, let me help you out. There's supposed to be a difference between the love that you have for her and the love for you, that you have for some inanimate object that can't love you back. See, our, our limitations exist here. We don't really understand the words. And when Jesus said there's no greater love than the love that you show to a friend, how could that be right? 
Well, you see right away, we, we don't totally understand friendship, especially in the way that he was talking about it. And we think, well, I'm married to this person. That, that's a higher level of relationship than friendship. Well, if you're not friends with the person you're married to, how good is that marriage? It's not. See, friendship is the foundation for it. And that, that, that part of it never, or supposed to, never go away. And he said, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And again, we talked about this, but I want to jump back into it. To, to lay down, it's that Greek word, tithemi. We talked a little bit about that last week, tithemi. T-I-T-H-E-M-I. That would be the, the English spelling of it. And as I was studying it last week, I couldn't help but notice the word tithe right there inside that word. Now, I want to make sure you understand that, that the word tithe, the way we think of it in the, the tithing of our finances or the tithing of our increase, there's actually no linguistic connection to this word tithemi. The word tithe, you may know this, it's literally like an accounting term. It's a mathematical term that literally means tenth or, or, or the tenth, 10%. And yet I see the same principle in, in the word that we're talking about here. And though they're not connected linguistically or in the Greek language or in the original languages that these were written in, yet I see the same principle to lay down. You'll see this again in a moment, but the same word translated lay down is also translated lay aside. Isn't that what the tithe is? Increase comes to you and you take that 10% and you honor God with it and you lay it aside and you say, this part is yours. It's not mine. It's not mine to do with what I want. It's not mine to spend on what I want. It's not mine to meet my own need with. This part is yours. And because it's yours, I'm going to lay it aside and I'm going to do with it what you want done with it. And you hear this talked about sometimes from ministers, from ministries regarding the financial tithe. You, maybe you've heard this statement before. We believe the tithe belongs to your local church. Have you heard that statement before? It's not true. The tithe, if you look at the scripture, belongs to the Lord. That's who it belongs to. And you might be thinking, wow, pastor, you're kind of taking a risk there telling people they don't have to tithe. Hey, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll do it bolder than that. You don't have to tithe here. I ain't afraid of you. <laughs> it belongs to the Lord. Now, it, it's no wonder that much of the tithe ends up in the local church. Because the Lord's planted you there. And if he's planted you there, he's got an assignment for you there that would include every part of your life, spirit, soul, body, materially, financially. And so it's no wonder. I mean, we tithe to our local church. We tithe. If you look at it from the Old Testament, it was bring the tithe to the storehouse. The storehouse was the place where people were fed from. So it's no wonder that in the New Testament application of it, you, you put the tithe into the place where you're being fed from. But, but I want you to understand that the principle of the tithe, whether you're talking about it financially or we're, whether we're sort of uncoding it out of this other word, tithemi, the principle is it's his. It's his, not mine, not yours, his. And if it's his, it's his to do with what he wants done with it. And Jesus said there is no greater love than to lay down 
to tithemi, to lay down or to lay aside one's life for one's friends. And again, we are, we are so tempted to think that what, what, the, what he was specifically referring to in the laying down of the life was, well, that's what he did on the cross. And that is certainly what he did on the cross. But remember the verse before it. I'm telling you to love each other the way that I have loved you. Now he's talking to guys while the cross was still in the future. So at that point, if he was talking about the cross, he would have had to say, love each other the way I'm about to love you. That's not what he said though. The way I have already loved you. Now the cross, again, I'm not taking anything from that. That is the ultimate example of laying down one's life. But I can't love you that way. You can't love me. We can't love each other by going to the cross. I can't carry your sin. I can't do it. Number one, it's already been done. Come on, are you hearing me this morning? It's already been done. I don't need to go to a cross for you. You don't need to go to a cross for me. And number two, I, I, I'm not that sinless, spotless sacrifice. You, you're not that. You can't be that. So when Jesus said, love, love each other the way I've loved you, he can't just be talking about going to a cross. If he was, then there'd be none of us left. We'd have all died on a cross a long time ago. So there's got to be something else that he's referring to, right? And you see this in the book of John chapter 13. And this is why it's important when you study some of these things that you take John 13, 14, 15, all the way into chapter 17, really as a whole, because it's one very long conversation and it's mostly Jesus speaking. But you see this in John chapter 13, specifically what he was referring to when he said, this is my commandment. He said it in verse 34. A new commandment, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? As I am about to love you, as I'm going to love you. No, as I have already, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, he said, verse 35, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This is the big thing, church. This is the way that we define ourselves as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our big faith talk that defines us as believers and as disciples. It is not our hyper-spirituality, our super-spiritual nature it's not because we walk around with our eyes half rolled back in our head all the time, just in this, this euphoric state of praise and worship. Oh man, that, that guy must be born again. It, no, not necessarily. That doesn't mean anything. What is the defining characteristic of a believer, of a disciple? This love. It's this love. Because without this love, your faith is nothing. What did Paul say? I could have faith, faith that would move mountains. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Nothing? Nothing. I'm nothing. He said, I could, I could give everything I have to the poor. I could even give my body to be burned. But if I don't do it with love, it profits me nothing. 
See, there's revelation in that. Evidently, your giving is supposed to not only profit the person you gave to, but the one doing the giving. Your giving is supposed to profit you. But if there's no love in it, it profits you nothing. That's why we say this week after week after week in our times of offering. We ask you, Father, to see it. Receive it from a heart of faith and a heart of love. That's the only thing that will profit you as the giver. Without this love, we are nothing. He said, I could, I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I could speak all the languages of men. I, I, I could say it in this tongue and I could say it in that language and I could sound beautiful as I speak French and I could sound angry as I speak German and I could sound, you know what I mean? I could, I could speak it in all these different languages, but if there's no love in it, what did he say? It's like a, a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Do you know what that is? You know what a clanging cymbal is? If you heard nothing but a clanging cymbal, that's my cymbal impression, over and over and over. You want to know what that is? Annoying. And if you could speak all the languages of men and angels, but there's no love in it, guess what you are to the people who have to listen to it? Annoying. Annoying. But it's the love that's in it that makes it receivable, that causes somebody to hear with their heart what you're saying. It's the love that's in it. Love each other. But again, as I have loved you. And here in John 13, you see exactly what he was talking about. This is the account of the Last Supper and how after supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. This is what he was referring to. When he said, love like I have loved, this, this moment at this time in history is the moment Jesus was talking about. Love each other the way I have loved you. Now go back up into this chapter and look again at what he said in verse three, what the Bible said. It says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Verse four, he rose from supper and he laid aside. That's the exact same word, tithemi, translated lay down your life. Same word. He laid aside. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel. Now you study that word and it literally is a reference to an apron that a servant would put on. This is what he's talking about. Serving each other. So when he said, love each other the way I have loved you, you could say it like this and it would be nearly a word for word translation. Serve each other the way I have served you. Could that really be true? That there is no greater love than to serve somebody? That's the greatest love. The greatest of all loves is demonstrated when you and I lay aside something to put on that towel, that apron, the, the uniform of a servant. And I believe this is more significant than just saying, well, you know, Jesus took one thing off and put something else on. It was more than Jesus not wanting to get his nice clothes dirty as he washed these guys' feet. It had nothing to do with that. All of it represented something. 
It represented what he, it represented the place he had. It represented the position he had. And you see it in the verses leading up to this. He knew where he was going. His newest time had come. He knew it had come from the father. He was going to the father. All things had been put into his hands. This is like supreme authority. And he took it all off. He took off his garment and he laid it aside. He tithed he, he laid it down and he put something else on. This apron of a servant. You know, when you and I answer this call to serve one another, don't be surprised if it requires that you take something off and put something else on. We're, we're going to look at this, but in the book of Philippians, it talked it talked about this, and I see it more clearly in connection to what we're talking about now than I ever have before. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself of his mighty weight and power. One translation says he stripped himself. Does that not sound like what was going on at that last supper? He's taken these clothes off and putting these other ones on. He stripped himself of his mighty weight and power, and he put on the form of a servant. For you and I to demonstrate the greatest love that could possibly be demonstrated to each other, to our friends, it will require you to take something off and put something else on. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself. Doesn't that sound like what's happening at this supper? For Jesus to do this, he had to humble himself. He went on in the very next verses and said, you call me Lord you call me teacher. And he said, and that's right, I am. He said, but if I, your Lord and your teacher, what is Lord? That is the highest place somebody can have in the life of somebody else. And he said, if I, your Lord, the one who holds this high place, have done this for you, you need to do this for each other. He said, the servant, you hear that word? The servant is not above his master. In other words, if, if Jesus has done this for us, this is how we're supposed to love each other. There will be something to lay aside. And if he had to humble himself, what are you going to have to do? Humble yourself, which means you're going to have to lay aside some pride. Amen. Shout out loud. Listen to how excited everybody is. Glory to God. You are going to have to lay aside some pride to serve each other the way he served us. Now, I told you I can't go to the cross for you. And yet I can crucify this flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, I'm not going to go to a literal physical cross. I can't. I can't take your sin, but I can and you can every single day put this flesh on the cross. But we do it for one big reason, to serve one another. And it will require that. I'm just forewarning you right now. If you're not actively serving the Lord somewhere and you're ready to get started, just be warned. It's going to require you to take off some pride and put on Humility. What did first Peter chapter five say? Be clothed with humility. That's exactly what Jesus did when he put on that apron. He clothed himself with what? Humility. When I was in the eighth grade, my parents became the pastors 
of the church that, that we had gone to. It was our church and there had been a few pastors before them. And the church had, had been small for a long time. But mom and dad stepped in as pastors. And I was junior high, eighth grade. And one of the first things they did was create opportunity for people in the church to plug in and volunteer and start serving. And, and the church had been so small, like I said, up until that time. It seemed like it was 100 people or so, maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But as soon as they started giving people opportunity to serve, opportunity to, we would call it volunteer, right? Plug in in this area and that area and this one. I'm telling you that church began to grow and grow and grow. And it went from 100 or 2 to 300, 400, 500, 800. We were meeting in this little chapel that, that sat a couple hundred people. And so next thing you know, we're in a second service and then in a third service. And as a pastor's kid, guess what? I was there for all of them. First ones in, last ones out. I've told you this before. I've toyed around with writing a book called My Life on the Front Row. The trials and triumphs of a full-time preacher's kid. That's my life, man, right there. But one of, like I said, one of the first things they did was create opportunity for people to serve. And they gave that same opportunity to the youth, the young people in the church. And I remember being in the eighth grade, ninth grade, and uh, one of the associate pastors came to the youth group and we were all sitting on the bleachers that we had in youth group. And they said, okay, we're gonna let you guys volunteer. Here's some places you can volunteer in and we want, we want to hear where you want to serve. Now, as an eighth grader, and you might remember this, there was like nothing higher on the list at that point in my life than being cool. That was like the, that, that's what you just had on your mind all the time, right? You just want to fit in. You want to be cool. You want people to like you. And when this pastor said, y'all pick a place to volunteer, and we're going we're gonna to plug you in there and that's where you're going to be. I don't know what and I don't know why, but I raised my hand and I said, children's church. And they put me in the four and five-year-old class. Now thinking back on this, I don't know that I realized it at the time, but I see it now. For Jeremy to go hang out with a bunch of four and five-year-olds, he was going to have to take off this Captain Cool thing and put something else on. And I did it. Like I said, we had multiple services. So every Sunday I'd come to church, I'd come sit on the front row during the first service. And as soon as it was over, I would uh, go down to the four and five-year-old class and I would serve those kids and serve their parents. And I look back on it now, there was this one kid and I was in that class and served in there for years. And there was a kid that came into that class as a four-year-old, Cole. Cole was this red-headed terror. I love him to this day, but I would leave the four and five-year-old class with bite marks. There was, it was every week after week I'd get home and mom and dad would say, what did Cole do today? I would bring home these Cole stories about this kid. I shouldn't call him a terror. He just had a lot of energy, man. He just was excited, I guess, about life. And and uh, he took a lot of that excitement out on me. But it, it got to the place that's an eighth grader, ninth grader, 10th grader, still serving in that class, serving those little kids, that I fell in love. I just so fell in love. And there was nothing cool about it. Not one thing. 
about letting little kids kick on you and bite on you and, and, and spill stuff on you. But I so fell in love with serving them and serving their families. And you know, it would have been easy as pastor's kid to think that, yeah, y'all need to volunteer. I'll be back here. <laughs> but I'm so thankful that my parents didn't allow that. I'm thankful that that wasn't the culture of our church, but that it was that you need to plug in, find a place to serve. And that's where the Lord plugged me in, four and five-year-olds. And there was a little girl that came to our four and five-year-old class. Her family had moved to the United States from Eastern Europe to be a part of this church and this ministry. And she was four years old. And they said, this is Anna. And she's going to sing. She's going to sing a song today. She's going to sing, Oh, the Blood of Jesus. And she's going to sing it in Russian. And we thought, oh, this will be sweet. This will be cute. This little four-year-old opened her mouth and began to sing. And everybody in the room was like, what is going on right now? And you know, her family stayed in our church for years. And her voice got better and stronger and stronger. She became a teenager in Sarah and I's youth group. And she served us in that youth ministry, singing and leading worship. She went on to record albums. She went on to lead worship at perhaps one of, if not the largest church in our area. 30,000 people go to that church and she was a worship leader there. And I have these memories of serving that little four-year-old, giving place to that little four-year-old, laying aside some pride, laying aside some junior high, freshman cool to serve a little one. And I'm not saying she's a great worship leader because I served her. <laughs> That's not it at all. I'm thankful on this side of it that the Lord gave us opportunity to pour into that, to support that, encourage that. And there's no doubt in my mind that where Sarah and I are today and what the Lord has us doing today has everything to do with laying aside things back when we were kids. She did the same thing. As a sixth grader, she started leading worship for Children's Church. And she did that for years and years and years. And then she led worship in their youth ministry and their college ministry. And later on, she was a part of the worship team in the church that she was being fed in. And you fast forward all these years and look what the Lord's able to do. But where does it start? It starts with laying something aside. Laying aside some pride, laying aside some position, laying aside some preference. What did Paul say? I crucified this flesh with its passions and its desires. So don't, don't ever complain and don't ever say you didn't warn me. I'm warning you now. If you're going to walk in this kind of love, if you're going to serve each other the way he has served us, it will require taking something off and putting on something else. It will require being clothed with humility. But listen to what Jesus said later in this same chapter, in this same account. He said in verse 12, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I've served you, he said, you also ought to serve each other. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. 
Love each other as I have just now loved you. But listen to this. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Are you ready? Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Ah, see, now you didn't know that was coming. You knew that when you did these things and you served and you served the, the, the church and you served the pastor and you served the children and you serve in the parking lot and you serve in the worship team, you knew you were blessing the people you were serving. But what you didn't know is what Jesus finished this whole thing with. And he said, if you do these things, you're blessed. Oh, come on. Listen to me, church. This, I, I'm not even ashamed to say it. I've got some ulterior motives. In serving you, I, I love the Lord. Absolutely, I do. So I serve him. I love you. So I serve you. But guess what? Jesus said, if I know these things and I do these things, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I said, I'm blessed. And you are too. If you know these things and if you do them, if you do to the people around you, what he's done for you. If you love them the way he's loved, if you serve them the way he served you, you're not just blessing them. You are ensuring that the windows of heaven are opened above you and a blessings being poured out. Say amen. If you believe that, look at this back in, in chapter 15. I don't want to take a long time with this, but I believe we will get into it in the future. This is one of those messages. Notice what he said in the verses leading up to uh, where we read in verse 12, verse 13. He said in verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. So Jesus isn't just telling you to do something. He's saying, I've loved you because the Father's loved me. And I'm loving you the way the Father has loved me. He said, if you keep my commandments, what commandments? Love each other the way I've loved you. If you keep that commandment, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He said, I've said these things to you so that my joy stays in you and that your joy is full. He's talking about your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction, staying full. How does that happen? If you do what he said to do. If you will love each other the way he's loved us, what's it going to do for you? Your joy. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me there's joy in this serving? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, there's joy in it. As a matter of fact, there is joy found in serving each other that you cannot find anywhere else. And people are trying, let me tell you, they are trying to find that joy. They're trying to fill themselves with that joy and they are looking everywhere, but in the right place. And the right place, you will only find that joy in doing what Jesus said. Love each other the way I loved you. Serve each other the way I've served you. And your joy, your joy, your joy will be full. Whose joy is that? The one doing the serving. Your joy 
will be full. Now, the reason he said this to these guys, again, take it all with John 13, 14, 15. They are depressed. He's just told them, I'm leaving. He's just told them, I'm going to the Father and I'm not going to be with you any longer. And they, they lost it. These guys got so upset, they got so depressed. And if you look back through these chapters, Jesus is trying to give them things to, to change all that, to, to stir them up again. In John chapter 14, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Yeah. You believe in me? Uh-huh. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and where I'm going, you're going to come. And in my father's house, there's many mansions. Okay. But you're leaving. And he goes, he tries one thing after another. He's like, look, I'm trying to tell you about heaven. And that's not exciting you. In John chapter 14, and then later in chapter 16, he's like, let me tell you about the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you about the helper that's coming. I'm not leaving you orphans, praise God. I'm not leaving you alone. You got help coming. You got comfort coming. And guess what they're going? Okay, but you're leaving. What is it they're so upset about? They think if he, love, if he leaves, love's gone. We've just seen love. We've just experienced love. We have lived with love himself for years now. And you're trying to tell us it's better for us if you go away? You're wrong. It's not better. And what Jesus is trying to say is like, look, Yes, I'm leaving, but my love's not. The love's not going anywhere. You can abide in that love. You can live in it. You can stay in it. And the same joy that we've had together for these last several years, that's not going anywhere. How do we live in that love? Love each other. He said, if you will love each other just the way I just loved you, you'll stay in it. You're not going to be missing any of that love. You won't be missing any of that joy. And isn't it interesting that this is what people are starving for? Love. Starving for joy. Real, authentic, genuine joy. They're looking for it in the bottom of a bottle. They're looking for it in bed after bed after bed. They're looking for it in money. They're looking for it in relationship. But they have not figured out that it's in, not in the selfish life but in the selfless life. That's where joy is found. Joy that's full and overflows. So I'm excited to get into that with you, but I want to touch on one thing or two or six, just somewhere in there. It's, it's, it's one of those. I mentioned this to you. Go to the book. Well, find two places for me. I want you to find Philippians 2, but also find Romans 12. And I want to start here with Romans 12. Philippians 2, Romans 12. If you don't find Philippians 2, it'll be there when we're done with Romans 12. So just, it'll be all right. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1, the Bible says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that you present your bodies, talking about this physical, natural body, this flesh body, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Living. What's that mean? Not a dead one. I cannot go to the cross. 
But that's not what he's asking for. He's not asking for a dead sacrifice. He's asking for what? A living sacrifice. And present this living sacrifice, this body, present it to God. What are you saying? God, I'm, I'm tithing me. I'm going to take the first and the best part of me, not the leftover part of me, but the first, the greatest, and I'm going to present it to you. I guess what you're saying is my body, his choice. Do with this body what you want done with it. Not what I want done, what you want done. I'm presenting it to you. It's yours. Present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable what? Service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is so powerful. You and I can have and experience total life transformation. That's a new and better life in every area of life. But it starts with the renewing of your mind, changing the way you think. So let me ask you this. Can you still expect to experience life transformation if you refuse to change the way you think? No. If you're going to stay stuck in the way you think, you're going to stay stuck in the way you're living. Transformation comes as the result of renewing. That same word renew could be translated remodel. This is something our culture knows a whole lot about. We are really into remodeling stuff. We make whole reality shows based on it. We're going to remodel this house. We're going to remodel this car. We're going to remodel this person's body for crying out loud. I mean, we are all about the remodel. But more important than any of that stuff is the remodel of the mind. Changing the way you think. And a part of any good remodel process included in it is a demolition phase. Somebody say, demo day. demo day. What do you do on demo day? You rip out trash. You rip out stuff that doesn't belong. You rip out stuff that can't support and sustain the new stuff that's going in. You got to do that same thing in the way you think. Rip out old ways of thinking. Rip out the world's ways of thinking. Rip out the natural flesh way of thinking and replace it with the word and with the way God thinks. But listen to this. Listen. Verse three, the very next verse. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who's among you to not think. So here's the first thing we're ripping out. To not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's the first demolition that has got to take place in the renewing of our mind. To not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's where he went to work right away. Is on this pride and humility thing. The renewing of the mind starts with you and I not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I might say it to you like this. The renewing of the mind also would include you not thinking more often of yourself than you ought to think. Could that be included in thinking highly? If your mind is constantly on you, 
and on what you want and on what you need and on what you desire. We've already talked about it. Present this body to God. What are you saying? I'm giving it to you. It's yours to do with what you want. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. He said, but think soberly. You could say, think realistically. As God has dealt to each one a measure of of faith. Now, everything he goes on to say in these next several verses are all about the renewing of the mind and changing the way you think. He ends this up with saying, uh, don't avenge yourselves, rather give place to wrath. He talks about uh, don't repay evil for evil. That's a new way of thinking, isn't it? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't slap back when they slap you. That's a different way of thinking than the way the rest of this world thinks. But I want you to see something here included in this. Verse nine, all this is the renewing of the mind. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another giving preference, preferring one another. That's a new way of thinking. That's, that's a very different way of thinking. The old way of thinking is prefer yourself. I got to get mine. I got to get my need met, right? I got to make sure I've got what I desire. I, I've got to work hard to make sure I'm fed and I, feed, I put food on my table with no thought to being a blessing to anybody else. Now, that's an old way of thinking that needs to be ripped out, needs to be gutted and replaced with what? This way, be kind, be affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serving one another, you probably don't even need me to tell you this, is not a natural way of thinking. It does not come naturally, but it will come supernaturally. It will come when you get a revelation of how you've been served, how you've been loved. And the response to that is to serve each other. Philippians 2. We made reference to this a moment ago, but look at it again. Talking about Jesus Well, back up into the first verse, Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, that word is sharing, we've talked about it. If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Paul is writing to a church. It'd be like him writing to this church. And he's saying, hey, listen, y'all, please make me happy. Nothing would make me more happy than if all y'all we're like-minded. We're thinking, yeah, that's great. That's nice. Do you know what a stinking miracle it is to have more than one person thinking the same way? You got two or more people in the same room and that's how many different trains of thought you have. What a miracle it would be to get, I don't know however many of us there are in here right now, to have the same thing on our mind, to think the same way, to be like-minded. Well, for all of us to be like-minded, how many of you can see right away? There's going to have to be some renewing of the mind, some changing of the way we think. Are you still with me? All right, hang on. We're almost, almost done. He said, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition. 
or conceit. Other translations say strife. Isn't that interesting? Strife is the result of selfish ambition. Strife in a marriage exists for one reason. Two people want their needs met without being willing to serve one another. That's the root. Selfish ambition. And how many times you've seen it, we've heard it. Sit down in a counseling session. I just have these needs and he's not meeting this need and it's emotional. And I have this mental and I have this, this need that he's not fulfilling and he's not meeting the need. And then he says, well, I have this need and you're not meeting that need and you're not meeting this need and I have this need. This is going nowhere. This, this is not going to produce anything good because nobody is giving anything. Everybody's just aware of their own need. Their mind is on their need. But he said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Here's a new way of thinking. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Whew, that's not real common. Not in the world and sadly not in the church. That you look around and you think to yourself, I'm going to treat every one of these people like they're better than me. See, the world is teaching us and training us to think, ain't nobody better than you. Nobody, oh, you think you're better than me. You think you're better than me. And see, what Satan's trying to do is pit all these people against each other. Oh, you think you're better because you have this privilege. We've been hearing that word a lot. Oh, you think you're better because you have this and you think you're better. Oh, you think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? Now, how foreign is it? And what a, what a totally different way of thinking it would be to not fight over somebody being better than you, but just treating them as though they were. Didn't say they are. Just treat them like they are. Esteem others better than himself. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that's his place, that's his position, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Guess what you're going to have to take off to be a good servant? Reputation. Reputation. You might have to lay some reputation aside. Even going back to my junior high days and serving, I had to lay some reputation aside to go in there and hang out with a bunch of snotty-nosed kids who were biting on you and kicking on you and spilling stuff on you. Had to lay some pride aside. Had to lay some place and position aside. Had to lay some passion aside. Had to lay some reputation aside and be clothed with something else, just like Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is what I want you to see. Verse nine, you ready? Therefore, or in light of the fact that Jesus was willing to lay all that down to Tithomy, to lay it all aside, and put something else on. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God exalted Jesus, but notice the reason. He exalted him because Jesus humbled himself and made himself a servant. If God would exalt Jesus 
just for serving, what do you think he'd do for you? If you love the way Jesus loved, you'll get the same reward Jesus got, being highly exalted. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what happens? He will exalt you. But it's going to require laying some stuff aside. And you get to the point where you start looking for it. You start asking for it. Father, if blessings on the other side of that, exaltation, promotion, honors on the other side of that, give me somebody to serve. Show me somebody. Give me, what, what can I take off? I got any pride on that I need to take off? Let's get rid of that. Huh? Do I have any high mindedness that I need to get rid of? Let's demo that trash, get rid of that. And I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to love like Jesus did. I'm going to serve like Jesus did. Give me somebody to serve. We're going to pray that before this is over today. But you remember, and I'll wrap it up. Musicians, you guys begin to come. In the book of Matthew chapter 16, you remember when Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some say this and some say that. And then he asked them a more important question. The most important question anybody could ever answer. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, man. He knew it. He got it right. And Jesus said, blessed, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. You got it from my father. Glory to God. I'm going to build my church on that revelation right there. Man, Peter, Peter got praised right there a little bit in front of all the guys. Man, you got revelation from God. But if you go back and look at it just a few verses later, as a matter of fact, the very next verse it says that Jesus from that time, from what time? The time they found out the place that he holds, he began to tell them the things that he'd have to suffer. He began to talk to them about going to Jerusalem, about suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, about going to the cross, about dying, about Tithemi, laying himself down, laying himself aside. And Peter fresh on the heels of this great revelation, the Bible says he pulled Jesus aside. This is already going bad. Peter's like, Jesus, um, step into my office. I need to talk to you. And the Bible says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Something's wrong with this picture. Where did he get the nerve? Huh? Where did he get the boldness to rebuke Jesus. So you got to be careful. Just because he got one answer right doesn't mean everything he thinks is right. You have to stay humble. Of all the kinds of pride that there are, spiritual pride is the stinkiest. It's the worst. It's the nastiest. Spiritual know-it-alls are the worst kind of know-it-alls. Jesus, step into my office. And he began to rebuke him. And you know what he said? You see it in various translations. One translation, he said, far be it from you. One translation said, be merciful, be kind to yourself. One translation, and I believe this is in the original language. He said, pity thyself. Have pity on yourself. What's he saying? Think more about yourself. Don't let this happen to you. Get you back on your mind. 
pity. Isn't that what pity is? Self-pity. Who are you thinking about when you are deep in the ditch of self-pity? Is it other people? No, they are nowhere on your radar. In the middle of self-pity, it is you, yourself, and you. Those are the only ones on your mind. And Jesus, Bible says, turned and said to him. Now, like other translations that bring this out, it literally, it it paints this picture. Just get it. They're all standing here in this group, right? Who do men say that I am? He's asking everybody. Who do you say that I am? He's asking everybody. This is all one conversation. Then he starts talking about the cross and laying down his life. Peter pulls Jesus aside, isolates him, says what he did, pity thyself. Jesus is standing here talking to Peter. One translation says, after Peter said that, Jesus turned his back to him and to Satan. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Poor Peter. I mean, five minutes ago, this guy was on top of the mountain, man. And now all of a sudden he's being used by Satan. Get behind me, Satan. His back's to him. Get behind me. Now we're familiar with that. Get thee behind me, Satan. But listen to what Jesus went on to say. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. What's Jesus saying? How dare you try to pull me back into getting myself on my mind? I'm laying that aside and I'm not letting anything stop me from serving mankind. The one thing that'll keep you from serving like Jesus served is you having you on your mind all the time. And if all you ever think about is you, you will never serve anybody else. And if you'll never serve anybody else, you will never know joy. You will never know the blessing of the Lord. You will never know exaltation and honor. Get behind me. And what I noticed throughout the rest of the New Testament is you never find Jesus coming back to Peter and saying, bro, listen, I'm sorry. I overreacted that my blood sugar was low that day. I'm, I'm just on edge. I shouldn't have called you Satan. My bad, brother. You forgive me. Never once apologized for it. What does that tell you? It was the right response. And it should be your response. When opportunity is in front of you to serve like Jesus served and the temptation to put yourself back on your mind, I feel I'm just too busy. I got too much going on. And the phone rings and it's somebody from the church or somebody doing something for the Lord and says, hey, we could really use your help in this. And you think, man... I'd love to, but I got this going on and I got that going on and I got to do this over here. And, and honestly, I just, I'm tired and, and I just don't feel, and I don't feel, and I don't feel. Who are you thinking about? Self. Self. What's the right response to that? Get behind me, Satan. And when Jesus turned his back to Peter, guess who's out here in front of him? The rest of the guys. And you know what Jesus said to him? If you come in with me, Take up your cross daily. That's where all that came out of. If any man is going to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And he went on just in the next couple of verses to talk about the reward that comes from serving. 
I'm telling you, church, if we're going to do it and do it the right way, there's going to have to be some renewing of the mind. Somebody's going to have to say, get me off my mind. Sounds like an old country song. Get me off my mind. That needs to be the prayer. Get me off my mind. Come on, stand up. We're going to pray it together. Get me off my mind. Say it out loud. Lord, help me. Get me off my mind. And what is the right response when you're tempted to be trapped in that self-pity and consumed with self? What's the right response? Satan, get behind me. I'm not yielding to that. I am called to love. Praise God. Is this helping anybody today? Whether you know it or not, we are establishing the whole culture of this church. And if you don't have any place to serve in the kingdom, you need to know that you go to a church that has created opportunity for you to serve somebody somewhere. And I fully expect we're going to have an increase of those saying, hey, put me in that four and five-year-old class. Because Jesus said it, suffer the little children to come to me. That means allow them to. That, that's more than just not standing in their way. That's actually making a way for them. So if that's stirring in your heart today, then don't leave church without signing up. I want to serve some kids. I want to serve some families. As you're driving out of here today and you see parking lot workers that are there waving at you and getting you off property safe, if it stirs in your heart, I'm going to serve the Lord standing in this parking lot. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to wash somebody's feet by being a greeter at this door. I'm going to, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to wash somebody's feet by, by singing, by leading in worship. I'm going to wash somebody's feet. Here, here's the greatest thing you can say. I, I, I just want to wash feet. Put me where you need me. Tithemi. I'm tithing me. I'm, I'm laying aside the best part. And I'm giving it to you, Lord Jesus. Do with it what you want to do. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.